No video this morning. You are stuck with me. Thank you. Yes, you will get your reward later, sweetheart, if you should. Spontaneous and unrehearsed. Pray with me this morning. Father, we thank you for this day, this resurrection day, this day that reminds us of the power at your disposal and reminds us of the lengths to which you went to ensure our eternal fellowship with you. And so, Lord, as we unpack your word here in a minute, we pray that uh, each and every aspect of your word would affect our hearts and minds such that at the end of our time together, we would better reflect Resurrection Day than we did at the beginning of our time together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Who here can remember the first car they had? Can you remember your first car? Yeah. My first car was a 1963 Corvair. Four doors, faded green paint. It was the subject of a book by Ralph Nader. Unsafe at any speed. And I proved that to be true. One day I had the entire high school debate team in my car with me. We may have exceeded the recommended capacity for the vehicle. And we had the entire debate team. I was going down a hill, and suddenly the steering did not work anymore. Which, as you know, can be a little troubling when you're in the car and the steering doesn't work. So eventually the car is coasted to a stop, and it rubbed up against a curb, and it stopped. It turned out there were four bolts underneath there that were supposed to do the steering mechanism. They did not work. They failed. Hmm. When I bought that car, I did not get a guarantee on that car. My, my very first new car was a 1979 Ford Pinto wagon. It, it was a manly peach color. That one did, that's not funny. That one did come with a guarantee. It was a 12,000 mile guarantee. I was so excited until 17,000 miles and the engine died. And I got it to the dealer, towed it to the dealer, and the dealer said, well, you know, the warranty's only for 12,000 miles, not... 17,000 miles. Thank you very much. Be glad it wasn't a Vega. I have a story about a Vega in just a minute. But you know, right, you go to the store, like Best Buy, and you, and you, you get the fancy new whatever it is you're looking for that you think you need but probably don't really know, need, but you're getting it anyway, and you get it to the register, and the, the salesperson has talked you into this thing, which is wonderful. It's amazing. And then you get to the register, and they want to know if you want an extended warranty because this wonderful, amazing thing they think is going to die pretty soon, and you need to take care of it, Right? Or even on Amazon, if you're poking around and you're buying stuff and you, you get to the checkout cart there and the thing, that what's, what pops up? Do you want an extended warranty on this thing? No, I don't need an extended warranty on my socks. Thank you very much. <laughs> however long they last is however long, however long they last. And if you read the warranties carefully, right, at the very bottom of the warranty is this like 42 paragraphs of the terms and conditions of the warranty, which you know, how many of you read those? Nobody reads those. And so you know in the middle of somewhere sometime you think, oh, this warranty's gonna take care of me, and you go back to the vendor and they go, yeah, no, no. Terms and conditions. The truth is that almost all the guarantees that you and I run to have terms and conditions to them. They have limitations to them. But we today are gonna look at the culminating episode in the Gospel of Mark 
where Mark talks about his description of the resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to find out that the resurrection is God's unconditional guarantee. That the work that Jesus did on the cross is good, no matter what. So listen, Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You were looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. We need to note, first of all, here the absolute fact of the resurrection. It's a historically verifiable event, as historically verifiable as the crucifixion. And Mark, the Gospel of Mark, all the Gospel writers, weave their records together as a continuous presentation of you-can-check-it-out kind of truth. And the resurrection is one of those check-it-out-if-you-will kinds of truths. Along the way, there were a couple of alternative theories about the resurrection. One story, it's, uh, Matthew talks about it in Matthew 28, 13, is that the body had been stolen by the disciples. Now these guys, the disciples, I call them the remedial boys because they had to keep learning the same lessons over and over and over again. These guys, they could not organize lunch on their best day. And so somebody purports that they take the body of Jesus, which, by the way, was under a Roman guard. Those Roman guards, if they lost anybody under their charge, live or dead, they were required to forfeit their own lives in response. So after an initial go with this stolen body story, this stolen body theory, nobody, no Jewish, no Roman, no Greek historian of the day, ever attempted to say again that the disciples stole the body. Here's another story that was circulated early on. The women went to the wrong tomb. Now, this brings me to my Vega car, my orange Vega wagon. I had, uh, today it's all about my cars. Have you picked up on that so far? I had uh, driven my car to the University of Massachusetts. It's a huge university, and it has this multi-story parking garage, and I parked my car on level three or four, wherever, and, and, uh, and then I went and did whatever I had to do, and and came back and I got to my spot where I thought I had parked my car and it was empty. So I ran down to the security guard at the gate. I said, oh my gosh, somebody has stolen my car. Can you call the campus police? I need them here right away. And he said, sure, I'll do that. I ran back up to where my car was supposed to be parked and sure enough, this time I went to the right level (laughs) and the right parking space and the car was sitting right there. So I just got in it and drove out of the parking garage (laughs) as the police were approaching the parking garage. Because I was unfamiliar with that place and didn't know where my car was parked. But these women, they weren't casual mall shoppers. 
These women had everything invested in this rabbi. They knew exactly where he had been buried. And they went to the exact right spot to anoint the body and found that empty tomb. My dad's stepmother, we called her grandma because she always acted like a grandma in our lives, is buried in a little cemetery in South Hadley, Massachusetts. I haven't been there as much as I needed to or as much as I should have, but because she was my grandma, because I love her, I know exactly where her grave marker is on the little corner as the road bends around on the north side of the cemetery. I know exactly where it is because I loved her and she loved me and I was invested in her and she was invested in me. Lee Strobel, the author in the book The Case for Easter, describes the resurrection as the most investigated incident in all of human history. And he did his work. He started out as a skeptical newspaper reporter and columnist. He said, I don't believe this Easter stuff that my wife has gotten wrapped up, to, wrapped up into. His wife had become a Christian and started doing all those Christian weird things, you know, going to church and praying and reading her Bible. And he said, man, this stuff is wacko. So he set out. He was, his, he was determined to prove that the resurrection was false. And at the end of his journey... He realized that Jesus, who was buried on Friday, was indeed resurrected on Sunday. And in fact, he did research into all of those people who throughout, throughout all the time had tried to debunk the reality of the resurrection, including a guy named Frank Morrison, who wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone, way back in 1930, way back in the last century. He checked out all those people. And all those people who had set out to debunk the resurrection came to the absolutely convincing conclusion that the Jesus who was buried on Friday was alive on Sunday. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Now, wait a minute. You can do way better than that. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen, he is. Now, with that in mind, with the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, with the resurrection authenticating the work of Jesus as the Savior, when Paul says in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 4, that God has declared, he's been, Jesus has been declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection. This resurrection is so integral to everything that happens in Jesus' life and work that he is described in John chapter 11, verse 25. He's not, he's not, it's not just an event that Jesus has in a resurrection, John says Jesus is the resurrection and the life. The resurrection, folks, God's unconditional guarantee. No terms, no conditions, no 42 paragraphs of fine print. The resurrection is God's unconditional guarantee that Jesus' work on the cross is sufficient. For you, it's sufficient. For me, you can take it to the bank. I wouldn't take it to Silicon Valley Bank this week, but <laughs> nonetheless. I'm going to let that settle in for a minute so you can think about it. And the resurrection, folks, changes everything. It changed everything then, and it changes everything now. Look at that initial group, the women. They get to the tomb. It's empty. They have this encounter with the angel. They are bewildered and scared at first. They didn't have the complete picture. 
But later on, uh, Mark doesn't talk about this in his gospel, but Matthew does. Later on, they run into Jesus in the garden. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. They still are a little afraid. But in Matthew, Matthew describes them as being afraid and yet filled with joy. As the idea of the resurrection sinks in. This resurrection changed them from being terrified, from feeling like they had been abandoned. It changed them to knowing the real joy of the reality of the promise of everything Jesus had said. By the way, as an aside, I think we ought to note the presence of the women here, these first witnesses to the resurrection. Because in that day and in that time, women were like 42nd class citizens. They couldn't own property. They couldn't testify in court. Their testimony as witnesses was considered invalid. Here, this is a writing from a, from a Jewish um, uh, commentary on the Old Testament law here. It says, Let not the testimony of women be admitted because of the levity and boldness of their sex. This was the reality in that day and time. And yet, what does Jesus do? He says to these ladies, Go! Jesus dumps all of that cultural stupidness on its head. And he says to these women, you, you're the first witnesses. You go and you tell the disciples. And then if we were to look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 8, we would hear Matthew say, they ran to tell the disciples. They didn't walk. They didn't stroll. They didn't saunter down the sidewalk for a casual Easter parade, parading their Easter bunny socks like I have on here. I didn't do that. They ran. That is what you do when you have life-changing news. You run with it. Now, I know many of the people in this room, and we heard the wonderful story about adoption of joy today, but lots of folks in this room have entered the grandparent phase. Have you looked in the mirror when you first heard the news that you had a new grandchild on the horizon? Have you seen how your face lights up? Have you recognized how many minutes you've put on your phone calling everybody you know and bunches of people you don't know to tell them, I have a new grandkid running to the neighbors, running to your friends? That's what we do with life-changing news. And that's what these ladies do. They ran with it. You and I are called to run with that news as well the news of the resurrection. There's a second group of people I'd like to talk about in that immediate aftermath of the resurrection. It's the disciples, the remedial boys. These guys, they go from cowering in their hiding place. Remember? The, uh, the ladies go up, they knock on the door, and they check the door. Who's coming? Is it the Roman authorities? What's going on here? And it's the ladies with the news of the resurrection. These guys who could not organize lunch on their best day. These guys turn the world upside down with the reality of the news of the resurrection and the life-changing results of the resurrection for anybody who embraces Jesus in faith. So for this initial group, the ladies and the gentlemen, life has changed. What about us? later. 
you and I, we are blessed with a much more complete picture of the resurrection than these folks had when they first heard the news, right? We've got the entirety of the gospel story laid out for us by four Holy Spirit-inspired authors. We've got the book of Acts that talks about how the Holy Spirit moves through people and moves to establish his church. We have all of that. What does it change for us? It should change everything. In the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, we are now united with Christ. He is no longer, God is no longer distant. He is up close. He is personal. He is resident not just with us, but Jesus in the Gospel of John says he is in us. Jesus said, because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And it changes our relationship, or at least it's supposed to change our relationships with each other. This common presence, this common residence of the Holy Spirit in each and every one of us, the, the reality of Jesus parked inside each and every one of us, it's supposed to change our relationship with each other. It's supposed to remind us that as an extension of our union with him, we are united with each other. A unity that we are called to protect and defend. Why? Why is it so important that Christians be united? Why does it make a stinking bit of difference at all? It makes a difference because Jesus said in John chapter 17, if you get along with each other, if you love your neighbor as yourself, if you do those things I've called you to do with each other, then the world will know that everything I have said is true. I don't know about you, but I can tell you there have been times in my life when I've been finished with an encounter with somebody and I've walked away from it and I've realized, man, if people were looking for evidence that the resurrection is true, that this Christianity stuff is real, they didn't get it then. Now, Pastor Laura and I are baseball fans. We are fans of a true team, the Boston Red Sox. And um, I know there's a team here in Colorado, but um, anyway. Um, I appreciate that. Um, I don't hit a home run every time. But as Christians, as believers in Jesus, our batting average, our on-base percentage needs to be higher than it is usually, with respect to this business of unity. We had the privilege of pastoring together a church in Worcester, Massachusetts. If you've never been there, don't go. <laughs> anyway, its only redeeming feature now is that it hosts the uh, minor league team for the Boston Red Sox. That's the only reason to go now. But anyway... We pastored a church together there. And it was a church, um, probably a couple hundred folks. The demographics were such that uh, because the city had changed, it was in the inner city. The city had changed. Lots of the people that had initially been part of the church had kind of migrated out to the suburbs and they were connected in other places. So the demographics were this kind of odd mix of folks who were um, 
How do I gently put this? Some of them were eligible for Medicare and uh, for uh, Social Security. And others were new migrants to the neighborhood from um, wonderful parts of the world. And so we had this mix of this, uh, this kind of odd demographic mix going on. But the church wasn't thriving in the way that we thought it could. There was another church in town. It had been a church plant for four or five years or so. And they were thriving in a way that we uh, really appreciated. The Holy Spirit was at work there. But they didn't have a permanent place to stay. So we started this conversation with these folks who were kind of eligible for Social Security, some of whom were, what's the polite word? How do I say this? Grumpy. <laughs> and, uh, and then this other church was uh, full of people, many of whom liked making TikTok videos. It's a slightly different environment. Right? So we started this conversation between these two churches. What might God be doing here? What do we think he might be up to here? And we worked our way towards a process of these churches coming together. The church that had been planted and was growing but didn't have a place to stay and the church that had some grumpy people in it came together. And on the day that each congregation took its vote, the vote in each place was unanimous to come together and thrive together. And at the end of that, I thought, man, that's what unity in the body of Christ is supposed to look like. So, by the way, this resurrection also changes our ultimate destiny. Physical res resurrection with new bodies. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And I can tell you, after a recent orthoscopic surgery, I'll be glad to change this body in for one that will not need meniscus repair. The first church I pastored, which was in Woodland Park, Colorado, we had one deacon. His name was Don Fee. And the very first time I met him, he was a beautiful, godly man, frail little guy, toting around a portable oxygen tank behind him everywhere he went. And a couple of years in, he uh, passed away from lung disease. And at his funeral, I reminded myself, Don, with Jesus, he's not dragging that stinking oxygen tank around with him anymore. New body. New body. Resurrection body. It changes our eventual residence, which according to the Bible is going to be visually stunning. But that's not the best thing. The best thing is that we get to be roomies with Jesus for eternity. That's the best thing. So all of that should change, folks, I think, our outlook on life. To get at what Peter talks about as a living hope. To get it in on every little detail of our lives. If you want to listen to later Pastor Allen's message this morning, he's going to talk, he talks about Jesus showing up for breakfast on the beach with the disciples after his resurrection, he tells them to, you know, he tells the expert fishermen, no, you haven't caught any fish? Oh, well, just put the nets on the other side and you'll catch them over there. And I'm sure they're thinking, seriously, Jesus? Well, I mean, we love you. You're our Lord and Savior, but you know nothing about fishing. You're a carpenter. But they do. They catch fish and he cooks fish for them and 
Every little detail of our lives, Jesus is there. Every little detail of our lives, Jesus is there. Where are you going for lunch today? Jesus is there. What's happening tomorrow morning? Jesus is there. When's your next grocery shopping trip? Jesus is there. I had my leg thing happen while I was in Safeway grocery shopping. I was in the back of the store. Unfortunately, I had a, a cart. I was leaning against it. Am I lost again? Static. Static, okay. Anyway, so I'm in the back of the store. And... 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 Pardon me, will I be a little frustrated for a minute? Okay, I'm back. So I'm in the back of the store, leaning on the grocery cart because I can barely move my left leg. And one of my missions in this store has been, there's a lady who uh, works at Safeway. She's in the self-checkout place. She's usually monitoring it there very early in the morning. That's when I go. Um, and if you know this lady, don't tell her I talked about her this morning. Um, you know the self-checkout place where they expect you to be an expert in their checkout process, even though they didn't train you or employ you there. They don't pay you for that. They expect you to do all that stuff. So I do all that stuff usually. And this lady is perhaps one of the, by her affect, By her affect, one of the grumpiest people I've ever seen on the planet. You know, you go to most stores and the self-checkout person says, thank you as you're going by, after you've done their work for them, you know, that you go by, they say, thank you for shopping here, wherever that is. No, this lady doesn't do that. So I have made it my mission, my mission, to bring Jesus into that process just a little bit if I can. So every time I go there, when I walk by her, I smile, and you know, for me, that's quite the effort. I'm not the biggest smiley guy on the planet. People in former places of employment have given me a smiley stick to carry around in case I need to smile at the, at the drop of a hat. I smile and I say, good morning. And the first time I did that, she looked at me like, should I call security? <laughs> Second time, she's still giving me that, mm, I'm not sure about this guy. The fourth time, I finally got a reluctant good morning and just the hint, the whisper of a smile. Jesus is supposed to go with us everywhere, even to see the grumpy lady at Safeway. Everywhere. But it's all not hippity-hop happy, is it, this Christian life? In Aramaic, they had a word, the word was Gehenna. And the word came from a place outside the city of Jerusalem in ancient times that was originally called the Valley of the Sons of Gehenna, of, of Hinnom. And over time, that migrated to become the phrase Gehenna, which means of Henna. And into Aramaic, it became the, the word Gehenna. Now, what was interesting about this place was that it was a smoldering garbage dump. 
It was where everybody took their stuff to burn, their trash. And originally, back before the Israelites had settled in that area, it was the place where human sacrifice of babies was made to the god, little g, Moloch. They put these babies in containers and shoved them in fire. Gehenna. So by the time of Jesus, in Aramaic, this word Gehenna, it is a euphemism for hell. It's the word that when they want to say, oh, hell, don't, don't tell anybody I said that this morning. When they want to say, oh, hell, they say Gehenna. Pastor Laura and I have had a bit of a, what we've called the winter from Gehenna this last year. In October, I got COVID. When I got over COVID, she had a bronchial infection. When she got over her bronchial infection, I got another bronchial infection, and later on I got another bout of COVID. COVID times two. Bronchitis, knee surgery. Laura's dad was diagnosed with pulmonary fibrosis. We had to do a late night run to the ER in Lakewood. And did I mention, mention the vomiting stomach bug I had twice? Thank you to all those school kids who brought it home from Pastor Laura. And somebody pointed out the other day that it seems like all of that stuff started when we started here at Christ Community Church. I don't think there's a relationship, but you know. And I just mention those things because I know that lots of folks have had way more impactful issues. Way more impactful issues. Cancer diagnoses and relational strains in families. Other illnesses and mourning the losses of people that we've loved and so I'm not saying we've had an extraordinarily weird time it's just been weird for us but in the middle of it there were lots of times that I had to remind myself Jesus is here with me Jesus is here with me no matter what else is going on, because of the reality of the resurrection, Jesus is here with me. He is risen. He is risen indeed. You're getting better, but still not there. Ten years ago, on June 23rd, 2013, there's an aerialist, you know, there's one of those guys that walks on the tightrope things named Nick Walenda. He completed a tightrope walk that took him a quarter mile over the little Colorado River Gorge in northeastern Arizona. Did it on a Sunday. He performed this stunt on a two-inch thick steel cable, 1,500 feet above the river on the Navajo Nation near the Grand Canyon. He did this walk in just about 22 minutes. A couple of times along the way, he had to pause and kind of squash down, crouch down, because the wind was blowing so hard. He had one of those balance things with him. This guy had also done this over the Niagara Falls once before. He's a Christian. And because they had a mic kind of honed in on him, you could hear him praying from time to time as he was, you know, doing this. I don't know about you, but there are times when I have felt like I'm walking on a tightrope. Crushed by circumstances, overwhelmed by the pressures of life, not knowing power in the middle of it, not understanding the purpose of what was going on, but in Jesus, with Jesus, listen, 
We are not walking on a tightrope. We are standing on a solid rock. No matter what our circumstances, the reality of the benefits of the resurrection cannot be stopped. They cannot be held back. They cannot be diminished. If we believe in Jesus, that changes everything. Because we stand on that solid rock. Pray with me. Father, we thank you so much 